This is their final Sunday with us, uh, as, and Brian's final Sunday is our associate pastor here at Redeemer. Um, and they have faithfully, he and Angela both have faithfully and lovingly served our church for nearly five years now. Uh, J- J- January 1 would be five years of service here at Redeemer. Uh, about a little over a year ago, he was installed along with Matt Simmons as an elder here within the context of our congregation. And so he served us faithfully in that capacity as well. Um, and in some contexts, whenever someone's gifts and calling are affirmed or recognized, the church would hold an ordination service. Uh, and they would ordain that individual to gospel ministry. We never did that. Brian said, and being installed as an elder is enough for me. Being recognized as an uh, elder in the life of the church, as a pastor in the life of the church is enough. Uh, but in those ordination services, oftentimes the pastor would preach an ordination sermon, right? And charge the individual who had been uh, ordained to gospel ministry, charge them to faithfulness and fidelity to Christ and to His church. And so we didn't have an ordination service. I didn't preach an ordination sermon. So what I want to do this morning on Brian and Angela's final Sunday with us is just be able to give him a charge as he leaves. Now, before you think this has nothing to do with you, let me tell you it has everything to do with you as well. Uh, So don't tune out, because in the context of this message, I hope what you'll hear is what faithful pastoral ministry should look like in the context of a local church so that you can know how to evaluate pastors and their ministry among their people, all right? So don't just say, well, the only application this morning is to Brian. No, it's to all of us. I told you several weeks ago that in the same way that parents raise kids and kids raise parents, can I get an amen on that, right? Uh, That also pastors raise churches, but churches raise pastors. And so it has everything to do with you as well. So don't check out on us this morning. I believe you'll be edified from it as well. The text that we're going to look at today is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. If you have a copy of it in front of you, go ahead and turn there now. If you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me as I read it for our hearing this morning. But 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, we'll read down to verse 16 together. Paul writes these words, beginning in verse 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's Word. In 1956, the American iconic country music singer Johnny Cash released a song entitled, Walk the Line. In that song, the very first words and the last words of the, of the verses are, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds because you're mine. I walk the line. Now this is one of his most famous songs. It's played over and over again in all sorts of venues and places. And this song in particular was written and sung and performed in it as a promise or a pledge that he was making to his first wife, who was named Vivian, 
all right, that he would be faithful to her while he was on the road touring, traveling, and singing. But it seems that a certain ring of fire interfered with that pledge at some point. Okay? But he was pledging his fidelity to his wife, keeping a close watch on his heart, his eyes wide open, because you're mine, I walk the line. And Brian, I would say that in this text in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that Paul is charging Timothy to do the very same thing, to walk the line. To walk the line. Because in the Christian life, for all of us in the room this morning, and in particular in pastoral ministry, for those that God has called and equipped to that type of service, there is a line to be walked as we aim to be faithful to the Lord, and it requires us to keep a close watch on our hearts and our eyes wide open all the time. In the text here, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, there's ten commands in these six verses. Okay, Paul wasn't... He wasn't satisfied with one command per verse, okay? There's ten commands that he gives, ten imperatives that he litters these six verses with, which tells us that Paul was concerned with how young Timothy would conduct himself as he carried out his pastoral duties and the church at Ephesus. And I want to address several of these commands here in the text under two broad headings this morning. Okay? And I want to charge you, Brian, and church, as you are responsible to help raise pastors as well, but charge you to walk the line in both doctrine and devotion. In both doctrine and devotion. Let's take the first one, a doctrine. To walk the line in doctrine. The context of the church in Ephesus is eerily familiar to the context of the church in modern America. Okay, let me just be real upfront about that this morning. In Timothy's context in Ephesus, there were all sorts and shades and stripes of false teaching that had begun to circulate within the context of that local church. They were swirling in the air, and false teachers had come into the church and they had begun to lead many astray toward what Paul's going to call later or, or elsewhere in the text the doctrines of demons. If you go back into the first part of chapter 4, let me, get, let me give you a sense of how serious Paul saw this problem actually was. He says in chapter 4, verses 1 and through 3, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He says in verse 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Now, Notice how Paul describes the teaching that's circulating in the jet stream of the church in Ephesus. He calls it the teaching of demons, the insincerity of liars, deceitful spirits who have seared consciences. In other words, they can't discern right from wrong any longer because someone has taken an iron to their conscience and seared it. They're silly and irreverent myths. Now that is some strong language that Paul uses. Okay, Paul doesn't just say, hey, there's some folks who see things differently that are at the center of the Christian faith than we do, and that's okay, they can do what they would like. He says, no, they're actually propagating doctrines of demons, their consciences are seared, there's an insincerity, and right, there's a deceptiveness 
Right? There are lies that are being propagated. And so when it comes to issues of doctrinal fidelity, there's strong language that Paul reserves for those who have departed from the faith. Okay? Now, when it... The, the, so you might go, well, what does that have to do with the church today? Everything. Because the modern American church, broadly speaking, is very similar. There's a mirror that you can hold up in 1 Timothy 4 and you see it when it comes to issues of doctrinal fidelity, sexual identity, gender fluidity. You can find a gathering of people on a Sunday morning who call themselves a church that has departed from the faith but still seeks to identify themselves with Jesus, package their message in accordance with some sort of faith and the church, and they identify with Christ while teaching doctrines of demons. When it comes to the prosperity gospel, 1.0, okay? The health and wealth prosperity gospel. That God will make you well and He will make you wealthy if you just serve Him, right? When it comes to prosperity gospel 1.0 or prosperity gospel 2.0, okay? Because it's morphed over the years, right? And so there's, there's some people still running around saying God will make you healthy and wealthy, but other people are saying, no, the, pros- the prosperity gospel now is being propagated as a teaching that says, listen, don't settle for anything less than God's best for you. And if that goes against the clear teaching of Scripture, you be you, boo-boo, right? You go do your thing. Right? Don't settle for mediocrity. Don't settle for less. Right? Have your best life. And there are people who are packaging that and, and selling that to people on Sunday mornings in a self-help message in terms of the faith that still identify with Jesus, at least kind of the comfy, coffee table, sweatpants version of Jesus, right? But what they're actually doing is spreading silly and irreverent myths with the insincerity of liars. So the church, the church, broadly speaking, in America is at a crossroads that hinges on doctrinal fidelity. So in, 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 when Paul says this to young Timothy, he's saying it to us. And it's important to notice in verse 16 that Paul doesn't say, when, when he goes on to say, keep a close watch on, 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 on teaching, he doesn't say on your teaching. Okay, He, he doesn't use the possessive pronoun there. He uses the definite article there. He says, keep a close watch on the teaching." The teaching, right? Because there's a body of teaching that's transmitted from generation to generation, right? And that definite article means this, the one and only teaching that there is about Jesus, the one and only teaching there is about God, the one and only teaching there is about the nature of reality and who we are as image bearers of God, the one and only teaching there's not your teaching and their teaching and this teaching. Paul says there is the teaching. Doctrinal fidelity. And what Paul says here sounds a lot like what shows up in other places in the New Testament, like in Galatians 1, in verse 6, where he says, I'm astonished that you, to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul says not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, Paul says. 
As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a, con- a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says there is one message of good news of Christ crucified for sin. First Corinthians chapter 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance, church, that Jesus, this gospel that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and raised on the third day. And he's appeared to many witnesses to validate his resurrection before his ascension. There is one gospel to be preached. And Paul says, if anyone comes in the name of Jesus preaching a gospel that doesn't involve the crucifixion of the Son of God for our sins, repentance, salvation by grace through faith in Him, let him be accursed. If the gospel is anything other than that. Or what Jude says in Jude verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says, listen, I wish I could have wrote you about something else. I wanted to rejoice in our common salvation. I wanted us to to relish the grace of God together. He says, but I find it necessary now to write to you to say, fight for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints because there are those who would distort it. There are those who would corrupt it. There are those who would malign it. And package it in a way that would serve their sensuality and desires. And that in so doing, they would deny their Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason Paul says this is so important. Look, church. And Brian, I would, I would say this to you. The reason this is so important is because of what Paul says at the end of verse 16. Look at what he says at the end of verse 16. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now what Paul is not saying, he's not saying that Timothy, if you teach well, then you will take the place of Jesus as the one who can mediate for these people between them and God. That's not what he's saying. But rather what he is saying is that Timothy must continue to keep a close watch on the teaching so as not to, dis- not to stray into a distorted doctrine of demons. And here's why. It's for the sake of his own salvation and for the salvation of those who are listening to and following in his footsteps. Because if Timothy departs from the teaching, the teaching, then he shows himself to be one like, like one mentioned in Jude who perverted the grace of God and who was long ago destined for this condemnation. If he departs from it. But if Timothy departs from the, the teaching, he's also preaching a different gospel like Paul mentions in Galatians. And he's leading people down a path whereby the end and destination would be eternal destruction when they think they're moving toward eternal salvation. That's why people's souls hang in the balance. That's why Paul says, keep a close watch on the teaching. Walk the line in regards to doctrine. 
So Brian, rather than walking away from the teaching, here's what I would admonish you to do this morning, to work it out. Right? To work it out in your life, to work it out in your ministry, to work it out in the context of churches that you will serve. It's one thing to have a grasp on the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith. It's another thing to help people see the webs that that attaches itself to in our lives. All the implications. Right? I've told people over and over again over the years is that every text in the Bible has one meaning and has one interpretation, but it could have thousands of applications in ways that it intersects in life. And so while we would say yes, continue to hold firm to those doctrines, work those things out so that as you teach, as you lead, as you minister, Brian, that people are able to see how the doctrine of the Trinity relates to their everyday reality. They're able to see how the substitutionary atonement of Christ is their source of joy on a Monday morning. Help them see how these great, grand, glorious doctrines are worked out in the lives of an everyday believer. So don't walk away from it. Work it out. Work it out and walk the line in doctrine. But secondly, and equally important, I want to charge you this morning to walk the line in devotion as well. Now there are two aspects, I believe, of walking the line in terms of devotion in this text. And the first one is this, is that Paul charges Timothy to set an example. Set an example for the believers. Now, Paul, it's interesting here because Paul charges Timothy to speak with authority. Okay? When in verse 11, he tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Okay? That word command literally says, speak with authority when it comes to what you're articulating as truth of the, of, of the Christian faith. Command these things. Now, Timothy, as a young man, certainly under 40, perhaps under 30 as well, okay? So as a young man, and by the way, in our culture, I guess I'm, 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 I'm not a young man any longer, uh, but in many parts of the world, those who are under 40 are still young men and young women, okay? Right? There's still a maturity that needs to develop in them, right? Some of us who are over 40 are like, I don't know if I've reached it yet, okay? But, but, but hear me, Timothy was a young man, And Paul is saying to Timothy, in the context of the church, where there's going to be people who are well beyond you, they are seasoned, okay, in the in in the faith. They're seasoned saints, going to be well beyond your age. And I'm instructing you, charging you, Timothy, to speak with authority as you talk about who God is, what God has done, who we are, and how we ought to respond. And so Paul says to Timothy. Right, as he exercises that kind of authority, Paul says in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul outlines five areas that he believes would help Timothy's winsomeness among the congregation that he's ministering to so that they would not look down on him or reject what he has to say because of his youth, because he's younger than they are. But he says, rather, set an example in these five areas. First of all, he says, in speech. And Brian, that would include what you say and how you say it. Right? The words that come out of our mouths 
right? And those of us who are married also know the tone with which they come out, right? The manner in which we speak to those that we're speaking to, what we say and how we say it, it would involve using our words at times, right, in corrective ways that would ultimately end up wounding, but wounding out of love, and other times using them in, in, in edifying ways that would heal and cover up wounds that have been created by others, right? Because the, 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 truth, the truth of the matter is this, our words should function not like a, like, like a broadsword, but like a scalpel, And particularly in pastoral ministry, Brian, your words should function like a scalpel, helping to cut away, helping to cut away sin and foolishness and folly and helping to bring healing, just as the physician would as he uses a scalpel. But if we're immature in the way that we use our words, we can end up wounding rather than healing with them. Right? It would involve our speech publicly and privately from a platform and interpersonally in the context of our conversations with others. And so the question is this for you and for me and for any who would aspire to pastoral leadership is do we want people to pattern their speech after ours? After that example that we're setting. Second, in conduct. How you carry yourself, how you treat others. Right? Is, is your life that is something that you would want modeled by others in the way, same way that Paul would say elsewhere, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. Right? In the way that you treat other people. Right? In your conduct and the things that you give yourself to, the way that you use your time, the disciplines that you're engaged in. Is that something you would say to someone else? Hey, in the, the same way that I'm following Jesus here, come along with me. Let's follow Jesus together. Third, in your love. In your love. Love that would be evidenced by service. Love that would be evidenced by sacrifice. That would be evidenced by a faithful presence in the hour of people's need. A love that would be evidenced by prayer for the needs in the life of those that you are ministering to. A love that's evidenced by your willingness to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn as you enter into their pain and as you enter into their joy as a faithful shepherd would. Do you want people to love like you? Fourth, in faith, Entrusting God to work, right? Entrusting God to heal, entrusting God to transform, trusting God to change people, trusting God to provide, trusting God to show up in those moments in which you know that your strength is insufficient, but His power is made perfect in your weakness. To believe that at the core of your bones, that you're setting an example for the believers in the way that you trust God. Do you want them to learn to trust God like you do? And fifth, in purity. In purity. And that is a purity in mind, and that is a purity in motive. Right? A purity in what you devote your thoughts to and what you would entertain in your mind. And then a purity in motive that would drive you forward in ministry, in your actions, and why you're doing the things that you're doing. And listen, this has always been important in church. This has always been important in pastoral leadership. If it wasn't important in Paul's day, he wouldn't have written it. But I can say that in the day and time in which we live, there is perhaps 
I'm not trying to elevate one of these over the others, but there's perhaps no greater need than a purity of mind and a purity of motive in the lives of those charged by Jesus to pastor and shepherd His church. I, I, I don't have to name names, right? But names will probably come to your mind if I were to talk about all the sex scandals that have taken place in the lives of very prominent pastors with very prominent platforms on a national stage. The ways in which they have fallen to sexual sin and disqualified themselves from ministry. Some of them, their, the, the scope and extent of their perversion did not come out even until after their death as people started showing up, as their lives were being celebrated, and their ministries were being rejoiced in, and they were showing up telling story after story after story of the ways in which the person who was being extolled on the platform had abused them in the dark. And I can say this. Listen, Brian, that doesn't start... With the action itself, it starts with the entertainment of a thought in the mind that ultimately gives birth to full fruit in your life as it moves and develops and matures in the heart where it's given room to breed. So a purity of mind, but also a purity of motive. Listen, we all are probably aware of not only the sex scandals that have caused individuals to fall and disqualify themselves from ministry, but also the abuses of spiritual authority and power. Where a people who are made in the image of God have been leveraged in order to expand someone's platform to a national stage. And listen, that doesn't start when they get invited to speak at conferences. Right? And because they want to be the, the guy who's leading the prayer at the inauguration. Right? It comes from a mixed motive of desire not to say, I, I don't just want to serve these people that the Lord has entrusted to me, that I want to use them, stand on their shoulders so that I could gain and garner broader recognition for the gifts that God has given me outside of this local scope where He's entrusted me to shepherd. So a purity of motive when it comes to power, a purity of mind when it comes to your sexuality. Do you want others to follow in your footsteps as they see that in you? In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Set an example. Listen, and I've said this before when I've preached on elders and the qualifications for them. Brian, God does not expect and he's not looking for perfection. There was only one who was perfect and his name is Jesus. And as, we, as you shared this morning up here, you feel like the chief of sinners. And brother, I do as well. Right? But what God is looking for is men who have patterns in their life of healthy ways, healthy speech, healthy conduct, healthy love, healthy faith, a healthy sense of purity of mind and motive. Cultivate those patterns so that you can with integrity say, follow me as I follow Christ. And you demonstrate that whenever you speak in a way that is unbecoming of, rep of repenting and confessing. 
whenever you conduct yourself in a way that's unbecoming of confessing and repenting, whenever you don't evidence love the way that you should of confessing and repenting, whenever you're not trusting God like you ought of confessing and repenting, and whenever there are thoughts that cross your mind that you refuse to take captive, but you entertain for a moment that you confess and that you repent. That's another way you set an example for the believers in these things. So set an example, but second of all, steward the gifts of God. Steward the gifts of God. Listen, every Christian is gifted by the Spirit for the church. Okay? And that's a huge recognition that you and I are not gifted by the Spirit for ourselves. So that we can feel important. So that we can feel included. We're gifted by the Spirit for the body. For the building up of the church. And this includes pastors. This includes Jesus' ministers. In verse 13, 13, verses 13, 14, and 15, I want you to consider the train of thought here with me for a moment. In verse 13, Paul says that Timothy should devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, which is like preaching, aiming to change the, the, the will, and aiming to change the behaviors of people, and to teaching, which is disseminating information about what we believe and why we believe it. So the reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching, Paul says, until I come to visit you, devote yourself to these things. Give yourself over to them, for in them you find the crux of ministry in the local church. Then in verse 14, he says that Timothy should not neglect the gifts that he has been given. Right? The gifts that he's been given as the council of elders laid their hands upon him to confirm those gifts that the Holy Spirit had bestowed upon Timothy. And then in verse 15, Paul says that Timothy should immerse himself in these things so that all may see his progress. What are the things that Timothy should immerse himself in as he refuses to neglect the gifts that the Spirit has given, I believe it's none other than the public reading of Scripture, preaching and teaching in Timothy's context. He says, immerse yourself in these things. Don't neglect or despise the gifts that God has given, but give yourself over to reading the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Immerse yourself in those things. Cultivate those gifts. Steward those gifts well so that the church would see your progress and they would be edified by it. I believe that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Right? He's saying that you, you, you would be mature in your gifts. You would steward them well. Like we all have a gift to steward. But Brian, you're setting the pace as a pastor in what it looks like to steward those gifts. To understand as they're confirmed by the church body and then to embrace those, to lean into them, see them cultivated, grow in them, and to bless the church with them. And brother, you have gifts the Lord has given you and those things have been tested and confirmed here over these last five years I've told you in private many times when you came five years ago there were some raw gifts in you right and over the last five years through opportunity and consistency those gifts have become refined and they've become honed Right? And I, I so much appreciated our conversation on Thursday when you said as you step out into this new chapter of ministry, you feel like you're stepping out for the first time, going into a new context where your, your gifts have been confirmed by the church. And they have. God has gifted you. 
And I've told you, it would be a travesty to see those gifts not serving the body as they've been refined here in the context of our local church. You've edified us through your leadership. You've edified us through song. You've edified us through the public reading of Scripture. You've edified us through teaching, leading life groups. You've edified us as you've matured in those gifts. But don't stop maturing in them. Listen, I've been been teaching the Bible now for... It's sad when you got to do the math, right? In your head. I've been teaching the Bible now for 25 years. Since I was 19. In some capacity. And I still see in the mirror, I have so much room to grow in those, that gift that God has given me. So don't stop growing. Don't stop maturing. Steward that gift that's been entrusted to you by the Lord. Steward it well. Continue to develop in it. But let me warn you of two things when it comes to your gifts. And I would warn everyone in this room of these same two things. And the first one is this. Do not confuse your giftedness with your righteousness. Do not confuse your giftedness with your righteousness. There is a tendency in every single one of our hearts. Every single one of our hearts to measure our standing before God on the basis of our performance for Him. And listen, that is maybe not more true, but perhaps feel the weight of it more for those who stand as pastors in the life of the church. I have felt that weight in my life of wanting to measure my standing, my right standing, my justification before God on the basis of how well I feel like I jumped through whoever was holding the hoop out for me and performed for them. It will destroy you. It will destroy your soul. It will destroy your intimacy with Jesus. It will destroy your dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you this morning that the only righteousness with which you can be clothed is the righteousness of Christ. That's the only robe that you should need to adorn to have standing with God. In fact, Paul will say earlier in the text, he reminds Timothy, he says, this is the root of all of our labor, all of our toil, all of our work. Because we're trusting and we set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. In other words, if anyone is going to have right standing with God, if anyone is going to have a place of forgiveness, a place in God's kingdom, if anyone's going to be saved, if anyone's going to enjoy eternity with God in heaven, it's going to be because of Christ and Christ alone. And His work gets applied especially to those who have placed their faith and trust in Him. All people experience God's common grace to some degree because God is a good God, but only those who place their faith and believe upon Jesus experience His special grace, His saving grace. And Brian, that is the only righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, not your performative righteousness that you would do as you open the Bible to teach or as you stand with a guitar to lead songs. None of that 
gives you right standing before God. It's only the blood of Christ. So do not confuse your giftedness with your righteousness. But second of all, do not confuse your giftedness with your holiness. Do not confuse your giftedness with your holiness. There is a tendency in every human heart as well to measure our maturity in terms of our performance. And I heard an old pastor say a long time ago, he's really old now, okay, because I'm old, right? An old pastor say a long time ago, he said, the, he, said, he said this, your gift, that your giftedness is not the measurement of your maturity in Christ. It's not the measure of your holiness, right? I think, I think that's become readily apparent in many of the, the, the church leadership scandals that have broken over the last two decades is that they were incredibly gifted individuals who did not have the character, the maturity, the holiness, the consecration of their hearts and their lives to God and their devotion to Him to match the platform that they had. So your giftedness is not your holiness. Remember, Paul says, he talks about stewarding your gift, but also setting an example. Having a pure mind and a pure motive of loving well, of trusting God even in the midst of the impossible. (laughs) Believing upon Him. Of speaking Words that are seasoned with salt that are giving encouragement and edifying people in every season in which they find themselves. And in conducting yourself in a way that's becoming of the calling God's placed on your life as a Christian first and as a pastor. So don't confuse your giftedness. Just because you're growing in your giftedness doesn't mean you're maturing in Christ-likeness. So steward your gift. But don't confuse it with your righteousness and don't confuse it with your holiness. So set an example, steward your gift and walk the line in terms of your devotion to Christ. Walk the line in terms of your doctrine and what you hold fast to. And in doing so, Paul says, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So walk the line. Ryan, keep a close watch on this heart of yours. Keep your eyes wide open all the time. And because you are His, walk the line. Let me pray for us. Father, today, we rejoice in the work that You've done in and through this local body as we've had an opportunity to invest in and be invested in by both Brian and Angela and their faithful ministry here over these last five years. I thank you for their service. I thank you for their sacrifice. I thank you for their willingness to take a chance on us as a church five years ago, this week. And I thank you for the way that you have grown us through them And I thank You for the way that You have grown them through us. And Father, I pray that as they set out on this new and exciting time, as they enter into a new chapter of life, a new chapter of ministry, God, I pray Your protection upon them. I ask for Your blessing upon their life. 
Father, I ask that you would continue to form them in the image of your Son. Continue to make them into those who would rest fully and finally in the finished work of Christ as their righteousness. They would mature in holiness. And Father, I pray that Brian would steward the gifts that you've given him. I pray that Angela would continue to steward those gifts as well in the context in which they are going. And Father, I pray that he would walk the line in doctrine, walk the line in devotion, and I pray that we would be able to celebrate at our 10th anniversary by your grace, or our 15th anniversary by your grace, the work that you're not only continuing to do here at Redeemer, but the work that you're doing at Kenny Avenue Christian Fellowship. And wherever it would be that you would lead Brian and Angela to serve your church as they continue to follow your lead. My heart is full today. I'm sure there is is as well, but God, I pray that you would help them as they grieve the closing of one chapter and rejoice in the opening of another. I know what it's like to have those mixed emotions, so may your grace be sufficient for them in this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.